And now for episode six with Tia Minock. Tia is my amazing sister who has also been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, lupus. At the time of her diagnosis in her early 20s, there was very little known about it. Being in the medical and health profession, Tia has had the fortune of education and support to help her understand how to manage and live with lupus. As Tia enters her menopausal years, she has noticed some changes and gives voice to how hormonal changes and lupus symptoms coexist, as well as her view on how perimenopause and inflammatory disorders have similarities. Tia has been a registered nurse for 25 years, specialising in adolescent health. She also holds a postgraduate diploma in Pacific Health and qualifications in child and adolescent psychology. She is currently completing her master's research. And she is a mum to two boys, a professional singer and coach, independent marriage celebrant and a black belt in karate. She's not to be messed with. In my opinion, Tia is the most emotionally intelligent person I have ever spent time with. I hope you are as inspired and educated by Tia as I am whenever we get to catch up. So I get to introduce you to the person I've known the longest in my life, my sister. (laughs) This is my sister Tia and um, obviously I've known her a long time. And Tia is here today because she has an autoimmune disease and I was just really, really curious as to how she deals with that and with perimenopause. And Tia, you're going to be, you know, what, 48? Seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I started some um, serious perimenopausal symptoms at 47. So here we go. Um, so what I remember about you when you got your diagnosis, and I think, I'm not sure if I was actually in Wellington at the time, um, or whether I was studying or, mm. I, I don't know, caught up mm. in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember you going to hospital for quite an extended period of time, and it had something to do with deep vein thrombosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were, um, you were really grappling with that. First and foremost, it was in your calf muscle, which is the common place for mm. DVT to be picked up and then it actually transferred to your lungs which is incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and um, what I remember is you were studying for your final nursing exams while you're in yeah. hospital like I mean I think it's kind of catch-22 you don't want to be sick while you're studying for your finals but you have nurses on tap yeah. <laughs> while you're studying for your degree um, and so I don't really know a lot about your diagnosis and I thought well I'll hand it over to you, Tia, to talk to the viewers and the listeners about um, your background first and foremost. So, um, because, but before I do, I just want to say from a personal perspective, um, how much I admire my sister and the the challenges that she has so gracefully dealt with, but also that she's the most, um, she has the highest emotional IQ of anybody I know. So when shit hits the fan for me, it's my sister that I talk to. And I know a lot of people will feel the same about their siblings. But, um, you know, that the fact that I have this sister who's just like so switched on and funny as, <laughs> I'm so lucky to have you. So, oh, thank um, you. Likewise, yeah, we've got a really, really um, close sibling relationship. And I think 
looking back at my earlier diagnosis, um, that was a really important aspect um, when you're looking at the support people in your life as a really important aspect of your um, diagnosis and your ongoing um, management of it. So, so I begin here. Great. So um, I think I was probably around 19, maybe 20. I was definitely in my final year of my nursing. You're right. I was um, getting into my exam year to be a registered nurse. Um, but prior to that, for about two years before then was when my symptoms really started to, to show up prior to my diagnosis. So for two years um, throughout my nursing training, I started to struggle with ongoing pain, which would sometimes be um, in multiple joints at once. Um, it was connective tissue, pain, swelling, joint swelling, headaches, um, a real heavy fatigue. You'd get really tired over pretty much doing nothing, nothing, um, no sort of physical exercise. You were just tired. I was tired all the time. Um, and then slowly but surely, the symptoms started to become more physically visible. So the thing with autoimmune conditions is that one of the difficulties is that you live with this pain, but people often don't see the discomfort you're, you're in because it's not visible to people. Um, so I was also training in martial arts. So like you, Trace, sport has always been a really big part of my life. Um, we both grew up. Um, been really encouraged to play sports. Um, I was um, sort of really into quite intense sport at the time and I was um, doing karate. So I was kind of training in to do my black belt. Now with that, you can often get a lot of injuries as well. So I was kind of putting down to maybe I was overtraining. Um, and so when I did get my first DVT, my blood clot, um, it was really unexpected because I was not of the typical age. I hadn't had any long haul flights. I wasn't at the time on the contraceptive pill. All of the things that most clinicians would start to think we, you'd have a higher risk of. Um, and so the DVT was managed through blood thinners and I, was, I got some physio for three months and then that was pretty much it. So at the time, I didn't really have an opportunity to talk about the pain that I had been experienced prior to that. Um, and then three months after that episode, um, I noticed that my, um, my respiratory, um, like my lungs and everything that I would, you know, that I was going upstairs and I found it really difficult to breathe. Um, and that sort of progressed to, um, to really deep um, pain on breathing. Um, and just because maybe through my nursing training at the time, I certainly wasn't practicing as a nurse, but just through understanding physiology and anatomy, I started to think that this was connected to the first DVT that I had. So I visited the doctor. Um, the doctor was a bit concerned because of my history. And then that's how it all came to be. I collapsed at ED and I woke up and I was in a critical care ward um and was in and out of I guess consciousness for a little while until I was um, stabilized um, and that's where the whole panel of testing had started so right up until that point of time I had seen doctors I had seen a GP I had looked at alternative therapies 
you know, we're looking at, I've lived with this condition for 25 years. So we're looking at back then, there wasn't a lot to know about lupus. Um, you know, what we did know is that it was mostly diagnosed in young women, childbearing age. Um, but there wasn't any um, really good testing to it before. Um, and so it took that long, I think, uh, to come to some kind of conclusion regarding that. And then the blood clotting thing is a side of that. It's like another type of element to lupus that not everybody has, but I've got it. <laughs> I've got yeah. a lucky bonus. So, I mean, I wasn't really aware or had never heard of lupus as well when you were diagnosed. Were there other conditions that they were looking at that, were, that are very similar or come under the spectrum of AID? Yeah, uh, not that I'm aware of. All I know is that eventually when I was transferred to another hospital for rehabilitation, because what had happened to my lungs in that time is that because the, the, it was such a severe amount of blood clotting that had happened in my lungs, I now don't have full capacity of my lung. So I have probably about 80% use in one and 100% in the other, but just that 20% was affected through um, just, you know, no blood flow to it. Um, and so, you know, under all of that, I was visited by a hematologist first and foremost, who told me why I was blood clotting. There was a particular, um, it's called antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, and then I was visited by, by the rheumatologist who kind of started to make the connections for me around how this disease, although there are two separate types of ways of, of things that are occurring, they get managed under one umbrella. And, you know, they did talk to me around how it can be really difficult to um, diagnose autoimmune. But I think because I was so resilient in terms of my sport and my fitness, I probably hadn't really sought help um, earlier because I just was a busy person. I had places to be, things to do, um, and I just continued on managing the pain, but I realized that things were getting worse when I was taking pain relief every day, sometimes three or four hours a day. Um, you're, you're quite an accomplished person in the health and wellness space. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? What, you do, what you're currently doing today? Yep, so I've been nursing since that diagnosis um, for mm. about 20, 25 years. And most of my nursing has been um, in the community and primary care. And then the last eight years I've been um, situated in the hospital in Wellington. Um, but I work with young people. So um, my specialty is in um, as adolescent medicine and doing um, youth assessments. And currently I um, have been working in the care and protection space. So that's where young people who have a background in trauma through child abuse or care and protection issues and who are in the care of Oranga Tamariki. So that can be quite emotionally demanding work and um, which is why I probably have quite a lot of other stuff going on in my life to balance that out. And that's one of the key things for me that I've learned about my condition is that emotional stress is a really big factor in um, increasing uh, other symptoms and, um, and things like that. So I, I manage um, to balance things out by, by doing joyful things like music. And, uh, you know, I've been singing for a long time as well. So I produce 
a band and I'm um, a singer in a band and we're not doing a lot because of COVID, which is a pain. Um, and uh, I'm a celebrant as well. Um, so I marry people, which is always an exciting thing to be a part of and sharing someone's story. Um, and I'm doing my master's uh, in youth health, Pacific youth health. So there's a couple of things going on for me. And um, yeah, and I think that it is, it's always good to have uh, other priorities um, to kind of put your illness in perspective. Because uh, I don't like to be defined by my condition, although I love talking about it to inform other people. But I certainly sometimes even forget that I have a condition because I have other things that I am um, blessed to be able to do um, that really balance balance the, the more difficult days out. I mean, I think you're amazing. And so a lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, that I do so much. And I'm like, no, nah, you haven't met my sister. Yeah. <laughs> And if you're wondering, you know, if it runs in the family, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And what's really interesting is for the both of us, like we're actually both having perimenopause symptoms and I could just rattle off all of mine, but um, mm -hmm. I will over time through mm -hmm. the interviews share what I'm experiencing with the person that I'm talking to. So your um, symptoms, what, what are you experiencing as far as perimenopause or menopausal symptoms go right now? Well, I remember messaging you after I started to experience a disrupted sleep pattern. That was for me, I was like, you know, you kind of put it down to thinking, oh, you know, I'm stressed or all of these other things. And it didn't trigger to me until I realized, actually, I'm in my mid to late 40s. Um. I might just check in with my sister and see if she has experienced these things when she was 47. Um, and then you had. So I had definitely told you that my sleeping was going weird. Um, I just I was either waking in the night or I was really struggling to, to get good sleep on set. It would take me a, a, quite a while. Um, I haven't experienced the hot flushes or the sweating yet, although I do notice that my core temperature does get hotter at night. Um, and then the mood swings, just, you know, I, and, and also... How crazy are those? Yeah, just... <laughs> How crazy just, are those, yeah. Absolutely, just episodes of irrationality, not being able to quantify why you feel the way you do. So, you know, the irritability um, and this real... Um, real filter for bullshit like you really don't have time for people's crap so so it's like you know you can go from zero to a hundred with your tolerance levels and um so I kind of noted that I I was starting to experience a shorter fuse coupled with the poor sleep and then my periods so my periods um started to become closer together um, and so now I'm monitoring those as well. And then I'd have a month where it seems normal and then it's, so they're starting to change. So although mine haven't gone boom, you know, 100%, 180 turnaround from being well to suddenly completely symptomatic, mine have been quite subtle because I know my body so well, because I've lived with this condition for a really long time, living with lupus for a long time, I pay attention to things that are different. And 
I just kind of worked it out based on my age that I would check in with you and go, you know, you're a little bit older than me, not much, but you're a little bit older than me. Have you started this stuff? Because I wanted to know whether I was entering it too early, not really understanding exactly when we should be going through menopause. But I know that with autoimmune conditions, your prevalence to start menopause is a little bit earlier than those that don't have um, an autoimmune. So again, I was aware that that was a potential for me. Yeah, and I think you, you spoke of that about how uh, perimenopausal symptoms um, and the relationship to autoimmune conditions. Um, when you told me about how they often flare up a lot faster, I think about some of the people that I know that also have other autoimmune conditions. Do you want to just update us a little bit about what you know about perimenopausal symptoms, hormones, and the relationship to AID? Because I think this is like the meat of today. Yeah, so my understanding through also doing a little bit of reading and research over the years, but also, you know, living um, with my condition and, and understanding um, the mechanics of SLE is that there is quite a lot of interest in the way that estrogen plays a part um, in um, the prevalence of autoimmune conditions. And in particular, SLE is most likely diagnosed in childbearing age. So um, from very late adolescence right up until early 40s is the most likely time. Now, what makes it difficult is that women who are entering, entering perimenopause and are experiencing joint pain and all the other sort of the indicators of things like an arthritis type condition uh, may also be experiencing those with menopause as well. So it can be quite difficult to diagnose slightly later, um, you know, post 40, because often doctors will put it down to it's age related disease, age related changes, right? So it's, oh, it's menopause. But there may be other things going on, particularly if your inflammation markers on a blood test show um, other activity that's not necessarily related just to the menopause um, hormone changes. But we know that um, for some reason, and, and, and it's not clearly defined what that turning point is with the estrogen changes in the body, but there is something that happens um, whether it uh, disrupts the message to the immune system, um, where for me, my immune system, um, you know, with any autoimmune condition, that's what it is. Your immune system is constantly in fight mode. Um, so, yeah, it's there's just there's some I don't know the mechanics or the science of it, but there it seems to be triggered by some hormonal changes. Um, the other. The other theory too is that it can be triggered through antibiotics, the use of antibiotics. Um, but I haven't seen any papers about, regarding that in the last couple of years, so that might be debunked. Um, but it is interesting. It does seem to be um, most likely estrogen related simply because again, it's a woman's disease more likely. So kind of makes sense. Yeah. And I think that there's more and more awareness as to how estrogen causes inflammation in the body generally. Yeah. Right. Yep. So one yep. of the things I really noticed, um, one of the first signs that I knew that something was going on was I'm just going to show you my finger. Can you see my finger? Yeah. See that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for any viewers, if you're a listener, you have to go 
to my YouTube channel to see that. So it was just my little finger got really swollen and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got arthritis. <laughs> and, but it was only that finger and it was nothing else. I wasn't getting that kind of joint swelling in any other mm. part of my body and my, no, not my ankles, knees, hips, nothing. And I immediately thought it's inflammation and I did seek um, advice from um, a hand doctor and he said it's yeah it's inflammation and so what I did was what things am I doing that's causing inflammation in my body other than my estrogen and progesterone progesterone levels yeah. changing yeah what am I actually doing that's causing that and it came up with um, stress and certain foods that I was eating and I'm not going to talk yeah. here on nutrition or foods because it's different for everybody but yeah. I, I I just realized the power of inflammation on the body so you don't have to have an autoimmune disease to get inflammation estrogen and progesterone will do that for you it will do it <laughs> right? for you and and some yeah. you know some women are more susceptible to others to to having that those changes trigger something in their immune system that behaves the way that it does um i know and as, as sally doesn't run in our maternal family um but osteoarthritis does and um you know with with our grandmother and then mum and things like that so the generation of those women were more likely to have osteoarthritis the generation of women today in this generation are more likely to have other autoimmune diseases like fibromyalgia and sle now there's a real connection with fibromyalgia and women in their late 30s uh and, and into their 40s and again it's like a stress response something that happens that triggers the immune response to be disrupted and um and fibro being another autoimmune condition is incredibly difficult to get a um you know a really good diagnosis over that again it's an invisible illness uh, you feel tired you're lethargic your muscles are achy um, when you find that you are just not as mobile as you normally would be um, you're struggling to get through the day you're more prone to therefore get depression and anxiety and it becomes this vicious cycle now if you look at those symptoms and pair that with what's happening perimenopausally it's no wonder that a lot of these other types of conditions can often be overlooked. But I'm not saying for everybody who experiences this, go off and harass your doctors and, you know, and ensure that, you know, you're getting, you know, 101 diagnoses checked off your list. Um, but it is interesting that um, these types of symptoms that you experience through perimenopause are also similar to the things that I experienced in SLE, even you know, back when I was 19, 20, I felt like I was aging um, in, in terms of just the, the, the type of inflammation that I had. Yeah, and I, I know and have been around you a few times when you have had what we call flare-ups. Mm. So do you, can you pinpoint exactly what sort of things cause the flare-ups and also, in perimenopause is it more frequent or is it more intense or you know how do you feel now like what happens when you have a flare-up can you describe that yeah so before I, I I'll, I'll mention what it was like before the medication that I'm on because the medication that I'm currently on is 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 life-changing groundbreakingly life-changing so but before I have had access to that a flare-up the difficulty with autoimmune is that 
sometimes there are precipitating factors that you can pinpoint and say, okay, that's caused a flare. But most of the time it's spontaneous, unpredictable, unexpected, which makes living with the disease hard because you can't often plan how you're going to feel each day. Um, and generally it's when you've got things on, you know, when you've got to be somewhere and you're, you're struggling to get out of bed. So that's one of the challenges with autoimmune is that you could be doing all of the right things um, within that time in your life. Um, certainly for me, prior to experiencing perimenopausal, I mean, certainly in my 20s and 30s, you know, I was doing all the things that you would expect somebody who was a health professional and who was pretty active to know about themselves. You know, what, what you eat is important, you know, hydration is important, all of those things. So, you know, I was applying those things to my lifestyle, but even so, there would still be really spontaneous flare-ups that could last in a couple of days. And when they exceeded that, I would need to go on um, prednisone. Uh, now, prednisone has its own level of complications in terms of, um, you know, a changing uh, and, and, and just making um, your adrenal gland um, function differently, which has another whole lot of symptoms that people experience. Um, so, Sometimes it was unpredictable. When it was, um, for me, times where I could possibly pinpoint when I was going to go into a flare was when I had too much sun exposure. Now, um, for me, looking after my skin is a priority. Um, not only because, you know, as you age, your skin gets thinner, but in New Zealand, our UV um, the light from the sun is really harsh and we burn really, really quickly. Now with lupus, it's a systemic, it's called systemic lupus erythematosus, which means that every organ is affected and your skin is your largest organ. So when that's exposed to various environments, um, in my case, you know, sun exposure, then that is triggering my immune system again to do something. My immune system thinks it has to fight something off. So if I've been in direct sunlight for a really long period of time, I'm talking about maybe going to the races and not wearing a good brimmed hat and stuff like that. So, um, or being on the beach for a really long period of time, that will put me into a state of fatigue. Um, and then like I mentioned earlier, emotional stress for me, physical stress doesn't seem to as much because my body is used to that. I like to move. But certainly um, emotional stress, um, uh, does play a part uh, for me yeah yeah um I don't want to dive too much into your medications and stuff that's probably another podcast yeah <laughs> someone else can someone else can do that one um so we will get on to um since this is called sexy aging um what are some of the things that you implement in your life um either daily or you know sporadically because you're feeling like I really need this yeah. that make you feel great and that make you feel sexy or help you get your mojo back? Yep. Um, so I think that because of what I alluded to before around um, skincare for me, and I don't necessarily mean that using skin products on my skin, I just mean that I tend to not sunbake. <laughs> um, and that I think has kept my skin in really good condition. Um, and so that makes me feel good that that my you know, I, I seem to be around my skin, I seem to be aging slower. 
Um, and when I look at um, other people who have had, you know, heaps of time in the sun or um, through the 80s, um, you know, we're always out, you know, in the sun and things like that. I can kind of see that I stopped that around 10 years ago. And in a way, my skin has kept its elasticity. And so that's been one thing that I think that I've often been quite, I guess, conscious of. Um, but I also commit to yoga. So um, for me, if I don't do anything else in the week other than walking, doing my walks and things, for me, yoga is non-negotiable. It's a, it's a contract I have with myself, um, mainly because even if it's not just the physical aspect, it's the mind aspect. Um, and with everything going on sometimes in my life where there's lots of things to juggle and things can sometimes feel overwhelming, um, that is one space that I can go to where I don't have to think about those things or I can think about them and just let it be, you know, and sometimes come up with an amazing idea while I'm in downward dog, you know, like sometimes something just comes to you and you're just in this, in the right space at the right time. Um, difficult conversations, how to manage those, you know, while you're on your back, um, having that meditation time. Um, so that for me is, is a not negotiable kind of thing that I do for myself. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really a lot more conscious about what I eat. Um, as we age, I think that we become more sensitive to certain foods that we were, would have been able to chow down. No problem, you know, in our twenties and thirties. Um, but now I've recognized that certain foods just don't, they just don't suit me anymore. Um, and I, you know, like I think really to listen to that if your body just does not feel good after eating something it's it's telling you that it's changing and avoid it perhaps um so I yeah tend to follow more of the Mediterranean diet I know it's something that's been discussed in a previous podcast um less red meat and things like that um so those things give me the energy um to to kind of wake up in the morning and feeling reasonably fresh and um, and those types of things and I sing and I perform and I'm an actor and and other things so just being able to express yourself gives me also a sense of identity that I'm not defined by my living with lupus and I'm not defined by my work or I'm not defined um, you know in any other way but I can create I can be create different hats I think yeah yeah yeah, I, I mean, I love the yoga thing. And I've just realized that you and I have not ever done a yoga class together. Mm -mm. How crazy is that? We're both like fully, fully into yoga, but we, ha we have to do that, right? We're, we're yeah. here now. We're, in the, we're yeah. in the same city. That's yeah. so cool. So, okay, note to self, we're going to a yoga on. class together. It's on. Yeah. <laughs> so to wrap up um, today's interview, and I'm throwing you in the deep end here, can you recommend a book, a course, a reading, or in your case, a song that uh, you would want the listeners to either read or research or enjoy well when you mentioned a book and you were instrumental in this um, because when I was in hospital for a really really long time um, naturally being told that I had this condition and there wasn't a lot to know about it as a 21 year old or 20 year old um, was really challenging because you just don't know what your life is going to look like 
and you feel that you know you're going to be carrying this heavy burden for you know a really long time and everything seems unsure and confusing and I started to spiral into a real low mood um, because I was I was isolated I wasn't you know I wasn't doing what I would normally be doing I was in hospital for six weeks and um, you brought me a book you can heal your life by Louise Hay now Louise Hay now has passed on but she's you know um has she um is the owner the founder of the hay institute which has done loads and loads and loads of self-help books and i know it's a little bit cheesy because back then now if i was to read that again you know i would kind of go oh yeah but at that particular moment it was really around um the psychological um, your psychological strength, recognizing how emotions play a huge part in your wellness. And so while that wasn't necessarily specific to my condition, it was specific to getting me from the bed to putting myself into a position of imagining life um, just day by day, taking each step and each goal and, and celebrating that. Um, but also understanding, yeah, generally how emotions um, can create or worsen symptoms, and in some cases uh, can can bring on some kind of disease. So um, that was really life changing because I really got it. Um, so that was one of the books that I most remember that I've read um, around, um, you know, life. Um, journey, the journey of a, you know, working and living and working um, with some, as someone with a chronic illness. Wow, I kind of vaguely remember that. <laughs> and yeah. when you said the book, I was like, oh, cringe. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago. And um, I'm just, you know, I'm glad that it helped, you know. And that's one of the things and why the reason why I ask um, the people that I interview for a, rec a book recommendation, because books, have been such an instrumental part of my learning and my life mm. and inspiration as well. Like um, I've mentioned before that the longevity book was given to me when I turned 45 by a really close friend. And it was the, um, the jump ramp for me to actually explore what would mm. it look like when I get to 50. Um, and so I know, you know, how the power of books. So I'm so yeah. happy to hear that. I'm, oh, I'm and another really, book, another yeah, book yeah. that I'm currently listening to on Audible at the moment, and it's been on my playlist for ages, is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, Love that book. Yeah, so, 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 so good. This yeah. book uh, was um, recommended through other podcasts that I'd heard as well, but um, it is so parallel to my own life. Um that uh, it's very powerful. And I think, again, it's around, um, you know, women really looking inward on uh, how society has shaped the way that uh, we are supposed to be versus what's really important to us, what our passions are. Um, and I think that that can free up um, a lot of things in, in, in terms of improving mental health, improving emotional health, um, improving relationships, and all of those things um, overall can improve well-being. So um, it's it's a, it's really autobiographical and it's really powerful in terms of the way that it's um, all the analogies that are used too. Hey, thanks, Tia. That was absolutely awesome. And now I'm just sitting here thinking that anybody that knows me, um, that has interacted with me, you know, my friends and stuff, 
um, will sort of now realize the depth and the support that I have from my sister because I, I'm just completely blown away and I know that they're absolutely going to love this. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah. At that yoga class. Down the road. At that, yeah. yeah, before also that. Coffee. I'll see you in the weekend. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode as much as I enjoyed hosting it. I love that there are so many generous women willing to share their story and expertise to help and inspire all of us going through the mire of menopause. If you enjoyed this episode, please check the show notes to follow my guests. All their details are there. And if you want to stay connected for further episodes, please like, subscribe, review, and of course share with your friends. It's through your support and feedback that I can continue to produce episodes. Aroha nui.